We are on page Lamed Chet 38 in the introduction of Rabbeinu HaRambam to his Mishneh Torah. Erev Tov, on page 38 we're in the middle of discussing the transmission of the oral Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai until uh, the sealing of the Talmud, which is ultimately the goal that we are trying to reach. I wanted to focus tonight on the next step in the transmission. So last week we discussed that Eliyahu Hanavi received from Achiyah Hashidoni and his Bedin, and Elisha received from Eliyahu and his Bedin, and now we're up to the step of the student of the student of Eliyahu Hanavi, and his name is Yehoyada HaKohen, and he received the Torah from Elisha in his Bet Din. So the next step in the transmission of Torah, we're now finding ourselves among the Nevi'im. And Yehoyada, who is a Kohen, receives the Torah from Elisha, who is a student of Eliyahu Hanavi. The son of Yehoyada Kohen, his name is Zechariah, he received from Yehoyada and his Betadin. So really this is not just a rabbi and a student, this is also a father and a son. Tonight, I wanted to focus a little bit on Yehoyada. But let's look at the note here. In note 18, Harav Kapach again quotes this old book, which tradition has, is from the time when the Jews left the stones before, or when they crossed the, the Jordan River. So that's the source that he's citing for this. And he doesn't tell us much else about Yehoyada. And for that reason, I felt it was important for us to brush up a little bit on our Torah history and to figure out who is who in the story of transmission. Most of the names we've done so far are names that you know. Uh, for example, Moshe Rabbeinu, Yehoshua, Pinchas, uh, all of these uh, that you know, uh, these are Chachamim, uh, these are our, uh, our forefathers that we read about in a weekly parashah, you've been doing this for a long time. We got uh, a few more names that maybe we weren't so familiar with, Achiyah Shiloni, we involved ourselves in his life a little more. And now, we're going to reach a few names that I'm not sure that people have really studied, unless you're a serious student of Tanakh. And because of that, I wanted to make sure that we did our Hishtalmud, that we filled in the gaps so that people will know that these are not just names, but these are actual uh, giants of our nation that we are dealing with. And so let's take it from the top. Yehoyada is mentioned in the book Divrei Hayamim, as well as in the book of Melachim, which is really the primary life of Yehoyada Kohen. That's where you're going to find most of the history there. He's a Kohen Gadol. So our rabbis have a tradition, not just that he was a Kohen, Yehoyada Kohen, but rather he was a Kohen Gadol, he was the high priest. And in the generation of the Melachim, the kings, he was a prominent figure in the history of the Jewish people. We normally find him in reference to a unique king by the name of Yoash. 
Uh, has anyone ever heard of Yoash, the story of Yoash? Do you know who Yoash is? That's a cue that if you know, to unmute your microphone. Yoash? The son of Ruth, of uh, Naomi. No, didn't he live in the Aliyat Bet HaMikdash? That's right. He got, how did he get to Aliyat Bet HaMikdash? He was a grandson of Shaul HaMelech, and he was hidden there when they were killing his whole family. Who was killing his family? I think uh, Atalia, maybe. Yeah, very no. good. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Let's let's uh, go there. He's involved mostly in the life of Yoash. Let's get to Yoash in just a moment. The Rambam mentions Yehoiada not just as a famous personality, but here he's introducing him to us as actually the next link in the chain of transmission of the Torah. <clears throat> There are some, there's a book, Mitzvah David, a commentary in the Nevi'im, who associates this Yehoyada with Yohanan ben Azariah, who was from the descendants of Tzadok. And now whether or not we accept that opinion and reality, it's an interesting uh, conversation to have regarding that Mifaresh, uh, that, that commentary. But for now, I wanted to get back to the story of Yoash and Natalia and to explain a little bit about the life of this uh, person that we're discussing with. Atalia is an interesting character in Tanakh, namely because she's one of those people, again, who we have a hard time figuring out where she really comes from. Uh, she seems to be uh, the daughter, the granddaughter of Achav, but also mentioned to be uh, the daughter of, uh, maybe the daughter, the wife of Omri, the king. She has a, a few different lineages, and, and Chachamim try to discuss Maybe really one of them is her lineage and one of them is an association. She's associated with bad people. Maybe both of them, maybe none of them. It's an interesting conversation. If you wanted to discuss Atalia, you could. Atalia essentially is not a good person. She introduces Avodah Zarah into the Jewish community. She's involved in upholding specifically the worship of Baal inside of Am Yisrael. And at a certain point in her life, something happens which causes her to not just be bad, but to become violent. She has a son named Achaziah, or Achaziah, sometimes he's referred to in the Tanakh. When her son Achaziah dies, she is concerned that someone else is going to inherit her throne. So what do you do if you want to make sure that nobody will inherit your throne? You kill the competitors. Very good. You kill, you kill the competitors. You begin to wipe out anybody who may have a rightful claim to the throne. And that's precisely what Atalia does. Atalia begins to systematically wipe out any descendants, specifically male descendants. In the immediately there's a family. You look at this, by the way, it doesn't just happen in biblical times. Uh, you look in, in certain countries in the world, I don't want to mention names, where there are people who are identified as family who are able to take over the throne. And those people are the first to be targeted because they are the only ones that rightfully have a claim to the throne and they're a direct, uh, a di a direct uh, um, threat to whoever is trying to rule at that time. So Atalia begins to wipe everyone out so that she can rule without anybody there to attack her or to claim that the throne is theirs. Yehosheva, who's also referred to as Yehoshavat, she is the wife of Yehoyada Kohen, and she's the sister of Achaziahu. She hears about this, 
and she decides to whisk away one of the youngest members of the family, Yoash, who is the son of Achaziahu. She whisks him away and hides him in the Bet Amitot, in, in the upper chamber that was on top of the Kodesh Kodeshim. So you had a, a holy, a, the holy is the building in the Bet Amikdash. In the back, you had the Kodesh Kodeshim. And above the Kodesh Kodeshim, was a, a special room, a chamber, and over there, obviously with the help of Yehoyada, her husband, who was the Kohen Gadol, she manages to whisk away Yoash and hide him over there in the Bet Mikdash. When it reaches the seventh year for Yoash, so Yoash now is already a child, yes, he's a child, but seven years old, is a child who has a little bit of that. Yehoyada does something highly unusual. If you want to follow along with me, you're welcome to look in Menachim Bet, so Kings 2, in chapter 11, I'm reading out of chapter 11. Yehoyada gathers together a group of very important people. He gathers them in the Bede Mikdash, and here's the story, the way the book of Menachim describes it. Uvashana hashviit, and in the seventh year, Shalach Yehoyada, Yehoyada called for Vikach etzarei hameot lakari v'laratzim vayaveh otam elav bet Adonai. He begins to bring all these people to the house of Hashem. Vichrot nehem brit, and he makes a covenant with them. Vayashba otam bebet Adonai, and he makes them take an oath in the house of Hashem. Vayar otam et ben hamedach, and he shows them the king, the son of the king. Vaitzavem lemor, and he commands them, saying, This is what you should do. Hashlishit mikem be'ei ha-Shabbat, v'shomrei mishmeret b'damelech, v'ashit b'shar sur, v'ashit b'shar ha-Ratzim, v'shmartem b'tishmeret ha-Bayit ha-Masach, that he essentially splits them up into groups and tells them that they should be careful, they should protect, without any sach. Well, this is the root of the word, hesechdat, not to become distracted. V'shtei ha-yedot b'chem, k'olitzi ha-Shabbat, v'shamut mishmeret b'tadunai l'amelech, Vihikaftem al Hamelech Saviv Ish Vekelav Biado Vehabal as Derot Yumat Vihuta Melech Bitsitovo. Basically, he's appointing bodyguards to protect the life of this new king, Yoash. Who is the king? He's a seven year old. But he is now a king, and he appoints them to protect this man who, uh, even though he's young, is a threat to the throne. Let me just tell you, I know someone wants, some people might be wanting to read together in an art scroll. Let me tell you where we're going to find it. I told them, Rachim Bet, you can it, right? Right, very good. 904 and 90, uh, 90, that's right, 906. Thank you, Baruch. That's right, 906 to chapter 11. Oh, I didn't know you heard me. <laughs> yeah, I could hear you very well. Um, so on page 906, that's where we're at in, in the art scroll Tanakh, if you wanted to use that. V'yasu asarei ha-me'ot k'chol asher tzivai Yehoyada ha-kohen. And these sarei ha-me'ot, they do exactly what Yehoyada tells them. 
took their soldiers they come to Yehudah Kohen he gives him these special things that are from the house of David. The, uh, uh, you know, this is a continuation of, king, of leadership. And they set up a defense, a perimeter to protect this new king. And they bring out the son of the king, uh, he brings out, And they bang their hands and they say, Long live the king! At this point in time, you have a seven-year-old, it could be, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the youngest king in Jewish history to ever be crowned a melech in the Jewish people. Now, Atalia hears commotion happening in the Midrash. She hears something is going on. By the way, the house of the kings of Israel is not far from the Midrash. If you're familiar a little bit with the old city of Yerushalayim, so you have the old city, uh, maybe imagine the Temple Mount. That's the easier thing to imagine. So if you're looking at the Kotel, that whole wall is the western wall. Not just the little bit that they paved the way. So people could pray there, but the whole wall, right and left, the whole length of the Temple Mount is uh, is the Western Wall. Now, if you're looking at the Kotel and you continue all the way right past the Beremigdash, you will see a valley. Today they call it Ir David or Silwan. That valley over there on the hill side is the palace of uh, Malachi Israel, the house of the kings of Israel. It's an interesting thing. You know, you have in Israel archaeologists who dig, and there's two types of archaeologists who dig. There are those who dig to prove that everything in the Tanakh is real and that it happened. And there are those who dig to show, see, we didn't find King David. See, we didn't find this. We didn't find that. Uh, my father, and he could probably share the story better than I could, uh, when he came to university in Israel for the first time, so he was a yeshiva student, and he figured he wants to get some easy credits. So he signed up for a Tanakh class. Tanakh, he knows Tanakh. What's the big deal? They didn't mention that Tanakh in university meant a biblical criticism class. Uh, they weren't teaching Tanakh, they were teaching how the Tanakh is a fabricated work. And in there, they reached the course about David Melech, and they said, you know, in all our digging in Israel, and our excavations, we haven't found any proof that King David lived. That's my father, he said something along the lines of, that's just because you haven't dug well enough, you, know, you, haven't, you haven't dug deep enough, you're just not looking right. And uh, obviously he got failed in that class, probably the only class he ever failed in his, uh, in his uh, career. When he came to the United States, he signed up for a newspaper, a magazine called, the, I think, the, the Biblical Archaeological Review. It was a Christian magazine. Oh, my father's connecting. Maybe he could share with us. Uh, but what was the name of the magazine? The magazine was Biblical Archaeological Review, B-A-R. B-A-R, okay. So Biblical Archaeological Review. What happens in this magazine is they are digging, and you see two types of diggers. You find Christian archaeologists and Jewish archaeologists. The Israeli archaeologists are doing everything they can to undermine the Tanakh. And the Christian archaeologists are doing everything they can to prove that everything that says in the Bible happened here in the land of Israel. And ultimately, they find uh, evidence, obviously, of David HaMelech's palace. And when I was in Israel, I went on a tour of the, the remains of the palace of uh, Malchabit Israel. And the tour guide there mentioned something along, if I remember correctly, Oh, this is the palace of Malchai Israel. We have not found the palace of uh, Malchut Bet David, the house of the kings of David. Most likely, if it's not the same building, then it's in that same area, would be where David HaMelech's palace was. If you ever read the story 
of David HaMelech in Batsheva. And David HaMelech looks out and he sees a lady bathing on the rooftop. And you ask yourself, how close to somebody would you have to be to notice them bathing on a rooftop? I mean, did she not know people could see her? What was she doing? She's the next door neighbor of David HaMelech. How does the story make much sense? And until you stand in that spot of Malchesa, you're standing essentially on the, the top of, how to explain? There's a road that goes around the old city. You're standing on the top and you're looking down into the Il David Valley. On the other side, the hill goes back up and the houses that are there are very far away, but they're very close in terms of seeing them. It creates this kind of feel that there's a, a valley and people who are houses are right here can actually see directly into each other. If you have good eyesight especially, you could easily see what someone is doing on their rooftop. Imagine those of you who live in San Diego, you'll appreciate this example. There are very clear days where if you walk down my street on Syracuse Avenue, you're walking down and you can see through the houses towards Claremont, the, across the canyon, and you can see those houses on the rooftop. Anyone know what I'm talking about? So you'll see those houses and they, they obviously you can walk to them, but if you have good eyesight or you're wearing glasses, you could easily see things that are going on, people putting up decorations, whatever it will be, even though it's far away. You know, Eretz Yisrael is the land in which you live Torah. And I saw one of the later Chachamim write that if you look throughout the Talmud Bavli, you'll notice different wording among our rabbis than in the Talmud Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi, the rabbis always say, Tachaze, Tachaze, come in here. Uh, come and, uh, and see. Come and see. Tachaze. Chazeh is like uh, looking. But in the Talmud Bavli, every time the rabbis speak to each other, they say, Tashma, come and listen. Come and hear. You cannot compare experiential learning, sitting in a place, I'm learning about Avraham Avinu, and I'm walking on the same road Avraham Avinu walked. I'm learning about Hebron, in this week's parasha, not this week, in the parasha, and I'm going to Hebron. I'm learning about Moshe Rabbeinu and I'm talking about the same land that he sent spies to. When you're sitting in Bavel, when you're sitting outside of Eretz Yisrael, the Torah is second, it's a second-hand Torah. You're listening, you can imagine things, but to experience them, already on the other side of the border of Eretz Yisrael, you're sitting in Bavel, you can't experience things the way you can experience them sitting in Yerushalayim. So Vatishma Talia, Talia, the purpose of this was to tell you, her palace is not so far away. She hears commotion happening in the Ben Migdash. Vatishma Talia, Kol Haratzin Ha'am, she hears the voices. Vatavol Ha'am Betadonai, she comes to the people in the Ben Migdash. Vatere Vehine Hamelech Omed Al Ha'amud Kamishpat, she sees this king standing in the place of the king. Vasarim, Vachatsotrot Al Hamelech, and they have trumpets of the king. And everyone is celebrating and they're blowing the blasts of the shofar. And Atalia rips her garments, she rips her clothing. Now, this is the difference. Vatikra with an ayin and Vatikra with an aleph. The first one is ripping, the second one is she calls out, Kesher, Kasher. Meaning, a rebellion. It's a rebellion, they're rebelling against me. And she realizes her time has come. And Yehoyada turns to the soldiers and he tells them, Take her out of here. 
והבא אחריה, המת בחרב. And kill whoever is going to help her, kill them. כי אמר הכהן, the Kohen says, על טומאת בית אדוני, she shouldn't be killed in the house of Hashem. וישימו על הידיים, ותבוא דרך מבוא הסוסים בית המלך, ותומת שם. And they escort her out of the Ben Mikdash, and that is where she's killed. Atalia is put to death at the order of Yehoyada Kohen. Here, this is really a rebellion. It's a rebellion where the Kohen Gadol is calling out the leader who's leading the Jewish people astray and puts in her place Yoash, the seven year old king. The next step. that Yehoyada does once he gets rid of the evil queen, puts in a new king, is to get rid of the Amhar, uh, to get rid of the, the, the Baal. Now they're idols. What do you do? Look at the next Pesukim, and uh, Pesuk 17. Vayichrot Yehoyada tabrit ben Adonai uben hamelech uben ha'am liot na'am l'Adonai Yehoyada makes a covenant between the people and Hashem. Uben hamelech uben ha'am and between the king and the people. ויבואו כל עם הארץ, בית הבעל, ויתצאו, they come to the house of the Baal. I believe it is, uh, they burn it, no? Torah down, okay. Torah down. Torah down. And they broke all of the idols and everything else that was there. ואת מתן כהן הבעל הרגו לפני המזבחות, and מתן was the כהן of the בעל. They killed him there. וישם הכהן פקודות על בית אדוני, and he put officers there. ויקח את שרי המאות ואת הקרי ואת הרצים ואת כל עם הארץ, ויורידו את המלך מבית אדוני, ויבואו דרך שער הרצים בית המלך, וישב על כיסא המלכים, וישמח כל עם הארץ, והעיר שקטה. That everyone was happy, the city was quiet. ואת אטליהו המיתו, בחרב בית המלך, and Atalyahu they killed with a sword in the house of the king. And here ends the reign of Atalyah, and begins the reign of Yoash. Now we have to be honest. Uh, essentially, Yoash is a seven-year-old. He's a child. How can a child lead a kingdom? If you look in Melachim Bet, so Melachim Bet in chapter 12, look in Pasuk Gimel. So look here. He was seven. He said, Ben Sheva Shnim Yoash Mufal. Yoash was seven years old and he was a king. It says here, Vayas Yehoash Hayashar Be'ene Adonai Kol Yamav Asher Horahu Yehoyada Kohen Yehoash did everything that was right in the eyes of Hashem and he followed all the orders of Yehoyada. So essentially, even though Yehoash was the king, Yehoash was following orders from the Kohen Gadol who was Yehoyada. It takes a long time until we see Yoash himself start to do things on his own without Yehoyada needing to tell him to do things. By the way, I think it's an interesting note. I don't know if I'm supposed to share this history, but it's an interesting history. In my wife's Hasidut. So they're called the Karliner Hasidim. But you may be aware that in today's uh, Hasidic community, there's a Pinsk Karlin and a Stolen Karlin. Karlin Stolen, Stolen Karlin, depending if you're in Israel and America, how they call themselves. I don't purport to be an expert in Karliner history, but from the little that I do understand about the history, the last Rebbe, who I've been by many, uh, many times, he became the Rebbe when he was very young. Very young. Mamash, a school child. And there were those who, maybe rightfully so, 
felt that they couldn't have a Rebbe who was a child, and they weren't going to wait till he grew up. And they instead appointed a student of the previous Rebbe to be their Rebbe, and they started their own Hasidut, and obviously that led to bad blood that was uh, there or not there. My wife's family belongs to uh, the Hasidim of Stolen, who are those who are the biologically descendants of the Stolen or Karlin or Hasidim. But it's not unheard of in Jewish history that a youth will be given a task that maybe is too big for them right now, but there will be people who will guide them until they're able to lead the Jewish people properly. <coughs> so now we find ourselves in Perik Yud Bet. Look at Pasuk Yud. So we're in Pasuk Yud. And we have here No, not yet. Don't look at you. Look at Pasuk Zayin. Vahi bishnat esrim v'shalosh shana l'melech Yehoash. It was the 23rd year of the rule of the king of the king Yehoash. If he became the king when he was 7, and now is the 23rd year of his rule, how old is he? Twenty-three. Very good. He's thirty years old. So really, there's a quiet period of twenty-three years. It's just a few psukim. In this time period, Yehoash does everything Yehoiada tells him. But we hear about him doing something for the first time when he becomes thirty years old. He notices the kohanim did not repair the deterioration of the bed mikdash. And Yehoash calls Yehoyada Kohen and the rest of the Kohanim and he tells them Why don't you repair the, the, the problems in the Ben Mikdash? And he tells them Now, do not take money from your acquaintances rather give it over to the reparation of the Bed Mikdash. And the Kohanim agreed not to accept money from the people and to directly give their money to the fixing of the Bed Mikdash. There's a problem. The problem is that whenever you find corrupt leadership, they don't just corrupt themselves in one area. Normally corrupt leadership is corrupt in many levels. Who was the queen before Yehoash was king? Atalia. Atalia built this magnificent palace to the Baal. Why did the Bet Mikdash fall into disrepair? Because where was she channeling the money that the Jewish people would bring into the Bet Mikdash? Connect the steps, Chavay. You don't have to work for the IRS to figure this one out. The palace of the Baal. Very good. She's channeling money that Jewish people are donating to Bet Adonai, to the house of Hashem. She's channeling that money into her own private funds to build the idol worship, uh, the palace of idol worship for the Baal. Essentially, she's misappropriating funds. And the Bet Amikdash not only... Uh, is the money that's going to the Bet Mikdash going to the wrong place? But the people, even now, now that Yehoash is the king, so where's the money going? 
How come the money is not going to repair the Bet Mikdash? The Kohanim understand that the people have fallen into distrust with the management of the Bet Mikdash. They feel that the money that they're giving to the Bet Mikdash does not go where it's supposed to go. And because of that, people are reluctant to donate. People are reluctant to give their money to those who seem to be representing HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm not getting myself involved in anything, but you can imagine the parallels between ancient history and current history, uh, for those of you who understand what I'm talking about. So what happens? What happens is the following. takes one box, one chest. And he makes a hole, drills a hole into its wall, into its door. And he puts it on the right side of the Mizbeach. So that when people would enter the house of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And the Kohanim would take whatever money they received, and they would put it into the special box that Yehoyada, uh, that, that, that Yehoyada put there. And when they saw the, the, the tzedakah box, essentially, this is maybe the first time we're mentioning a tzedakah box, it's full. And the king sofer, the scribe of the king, and the kohen gadol, they came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of Hashem. Here is something very interesting. Very interesting. You find that now that they have to count the money in the Kupat Zedakah, they don't do it alone. They don't do it alone, but they make sure that there's someone else watching. There's a checks and balance system here. Because in order to assure the people that their money is not going to be misappropriated again, they want to show the people that there's accountability. There's someone else from the house of the king, someone from the Bet Mikdash, that are going to be there to count the money to make sure that all the money is there. It's a very important thing. In general, not you know, when it comes to money, people get shy, they get bashful. I recently uh, sold my, my old car and I, I got money for it. And I said to the person, I said, listen, I know the money's there, but let's just do a favor, let's count the money together. We count the money together. It's highly unusual. He already brought it, counted, and separated. And I said, it's an important thing that a person should know that you count. In front of, because I can't come and complain to you, oh, there wasn't enough money. You didn't give me when I didn't count it. It's an important thing to make sure that there's accountability for what's there. Even in, a, in any setting that you are in, in any place, any time that you deal with money, you want to make sure that things don't look shady. Forget that they are shady. The things don't look shady. That you don't do things that aren't appropriate, that aren't okay. In business dealings, in your own personal life, in communal finances, how much more so you're dealing with other people's money. A person has to be very careful, to be very not just to not do things that are averot. That I know, for sure a person that can't do things that are averot. But to do more than that. To make sure that the things that are, I'll tell you, I once had to donate to Araperetz, uh, had to. I didn't. I wanted to. A few of you collected money to help our parents print uh, one of his books back in the day. I'm talking about a very long time ago. And I brought the money to our parents. And I gave it to our parents, and he counted it and put it in an envelope and wrote on it what it was for and put it on his desk. 
And I remember him telling me something on Let's, you know, sometimes you give someone money and they, they take the envelope and they put it in their pocket. The action of putting money in your pocket is you taking ownership of money. It's not yours to take ownership over. It's not a halakha. You don't have to worry about putting, someone gave you money, that's where you keep the money, it's in your pocket. I'm not telling you not to. But to be careful that you should be clean. You shouldn't do things that lead people to think that the money that someone gave you for tzedakah ended up in your pocket afterwards. I got distracted. I didn't mean to get distracted. Let's talk about the end of the life of Yehoyadan. Can I ask one question? Sure. Why, why did he wait till he was 30 years old to get the temple repaired? Why didn't he do it when he was 20 or 17? This is a fantastic question. <clears throat> I don't actually have an answer. I don't want to make up an answer off the top of my head. I'm more than happy to look into the commentaries and see what's the significance of uh, 23 years after he becomes the king. Why 30? Why not 20? Um, did, did, was he not in the Benedict Dash for 10 years? Did he not notice that things were falling into disrepair? I don't know. I don't have a good answer and I don't want to give you an answer that's you know, just, uh, I made it up. So let me look into it. Okay, thank you. So now we find ourselves in Divrei Hayamim. Divrei Hayamim, in uh, Divrei Hayamim 2, that's, I think they call what they call it in English, uh, Chronicles, in Chronicles 2, uh, chapter 24. Yehoyada becomes old and, and uh, lives a ripe old age. And he dies. He was 130 years old when he died. You know, there's this attitude of you can only live until 120 years. The people say this, and there are many people who give different sources for it. I mean, as time, though, you see that even after Moshe Rabbeinu, people live till 130 years old. Something that happened. I, I don't know where people get this feeling that if they live to 100, then, you know, they said, what do you wish a person on his 120th birthday? You say, have a nice day. You know, it's, not a, it's not true that a person dies in 120. Halavai, we should reach that age. I once met a person 105 or 106. I met him in a senior home. And I wished him, Hashem should give you a long life. He says, don't curse me. I said, well, I, that wasn't, I really wasn't cursing you. He says life is miserable. He doesn't have family. He doesn't have ch- his children already died. He said uh, he's sick. He's not well. He just wants to die. He doesn't want to be blessed. He should live a, a long life. So over there, I really didn't know what to wish him. But halavai that a person should live to an old age in happiness. So it says that's what it says. It wasn't just he lived, but he lived a fruitful life. And they buried him in that valley in the city of David. With the kings. He because he did righteousness. He did good in the Jewish people. And with God in the home, in the Tibetan dash of God. So essentially, Yehoyada doesn't just die as a, as a Navi, doesn't just die as a Kohen, doesn't just die as an Avbedin. He dies among the kings of Israel. He is the one who restored glory not just to the Tibetan Mikdash, but to the kingdom of Israel. And really, for many, many years, he was the one who managed the king. And he was given a very honorable burial, meaning the people respected him as someone who should be buried among kings. The son of Yehoyada is named Zechariah, and he is who we're going to deal with, Bezad Hashem, uh, tomorrow. Let me just say that there are a few instances where Chachami mentioned Yehoyada the Shevach. So the Midrash mentions about Yehoyada. It says in Yivrei Yamim, Yehoyada was the chief of Aharon. 
החכמים say, וכי הוא ידע היה נגיד אהרון? אז הוא ידע the chief of, of אהרון. Did he know אהרון? What's the connection here with אהרון? אלא, rather, means to tell you, אילו היה אהרון קיים בדורו של יהוידה. If אהרון הכהן was alive in the time of יהוידה הכהן, יהוידה היה גדול ממנו בשעתו. יהוידה would be greater than אהרון הכהן in his time. Now, I don't really understand why Chachamim sometimes have the need to compare people, why everyone can't just be great, but I think they're telling you in general, Yehoyada wasn't just righteous because he lived in an evil generation. He was righteous that even if he was living with the first of the Kohanim Gedolim, he would still be the chief among them. There are many Midrashim and many different Agadot that you in a Midrash Halakha that we have recorded what Yehoyada taught Am Yisrael in Halakha. But last but not least, I found on Wikipedia, of all places, I found a letter from uh, Rabbeinu Hai Gaon. Rabbeinu Hai Gaon is one of the Geonim. This is before the generation of the Rishonim. And he identifies, how can you figure out whether a Kohen is from the descendants of Yehoyada or not? So he writes his letter to the Kohanim living in a place. Do you remember, I've spoken to you before, there was an island somewhere in a Sephardic country where almost every person there, maybe every person there, were Kohanim. Do you know which island I'm speaking about? Very good. I, Dan said I read his lips. Jerba. <laughs> I, I saw, I, you, you, you said it before you unmuted yourself. Jerba. That's correct. Uh, Jerba, Tunis, Tunisia. Then Jerba is an is a island there. And in Jerba, the Jews that left Jerba are all Kohanim. This Rabbi HaKohen, that Rabbi HaKohen, they were Tamidei Chamim. Rabbi Meir Mazuz in Bnei Brak writes in one of his, um, he has a random book, I want to tell what it's called, something Asaf, something collections. It's like he you know, had in his drawer a lot of papers he wrote random notes in. And in there he writes that the Jews of Jerba are very similar to the Jews of Teman, the Jews of Yemen. It was an old place where they were the educated ones, they were very righteous, many people were sofrim, they have many customs that are very similar, they didn't interact very much with the outside world, outside of where they were in, and, and he draws some interesting parallels there, if anybody wants to, but this is many, many years before, Harav Mazuz and his family were in Jerba. Rav Haigon writes the following words, Kol Kohen, every Kohen, Tamim Bidrachav, who is pure in his ways, Mitsuyan Barchotav, who excels in his character traits, and is straight and just in all his actions, who is always the first person to come to the Bet Knesset and the Bet Midrash, and the last one to leave the Bet Knesset and the Bet Midrash, and is a person who guards himself from everything evil, and from any uh, impurity, this is a sign that these people are descendants of Yehoyad And these people who are Kohanim, who act in this way, show you that they, if not the biological descendants, are the spiritual descendants of Yehoyadah Kohen. And it is fitting that Ruach HaKodesh should rest itself upon the, these people. And I think that we're living in a time of Chuban, in a time of destruction, as we're going to talk about tomorrow with Zechariah, the son of Yehoyadah. And before we get into the depressing things of tomorrow, for today we can at least hope that the Kohanim among us, we say in Yom Kippurim, Va Kohanim Ve Ha'am Ha'omdim Ba'azara.
So I'm including the Kohanim and the Am, the rest of the nation. All those who are able to emulate to stand up against evil, to fight corruption, to be close to all that is good, to be those who are so dedicated, they are the first ones in everything good, and they are the last ones to leave everything good. Such people are worthy of having Ruach HaKodesh rest on them. Bezalat Hashem, in the merit of their Ruach HaKodesh, maybe they could help guide this Ruach HaKodesh-less generation into the right direction and guide us to the place where HaKadosh Baruch Hu will say, V'yomar l'tzarotenu, die. He'll say enough to all of our suffering. Bezalat Hashem.